everyone. Welcome to the Brand Safety Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Xinyuan, the president and the co-founder of Oasis Consortium. Today, I'm very excited to have our guest, Phil Tomlinson, Global Lead of Trust and Safety of Tascos. And Phil has been an early supporter of the consortium and has recently joined us as a board member and has been an expert and a veteran in the space of digital trust and safety. So today we'll share his perspectives about the space. So welcome, Phil. Thank you, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to spend some time with you and to talk trust and safety. Amazing. Phil, first of all, share with us about Task Us and your role there. Yeah, so Taskus are a global outsourcing company um, headquartered in the US, but with a with a global footprint. We have about 50,000 employees around the world. Um, we do a bunch of stuff, but one of our main services that we offer is trust and safety and content moderation. Um, so I lead the trust and safety service at Taskus. I've been in the role for about three years. Um, I have a team of domain experts around the world who focus on um, really defining the product of trust and safety at Tasker. So what are the capabilities? What are the offerings? What are the problems that we solve for our clients? And then building um, specialized services to try and meet those customer needs. So whether that be uh, on operational, so, so how do we you know, make a more efficient trust and safety uh, operation or some of the more specialized things that we do around moderator health and well-being, psychological health and safety, um, policy research, um, and as well as bringing in technology, both technology that we build ourselves, but also through partners uh, to augment what we do in, in that space. And we serve, Tasker serves primarily the fast-growing tech segment. So we work with large social media, dating, gaming, marketplace, fintech platforms, um, and we do we have about 7,000 people around the world today out of that out of that 50,000 who do this work. Amazing. And Phil, you and I have known each other for a while. And mm -hmm. one very early on I pointed out was that you're actually one of the people um, I know who have very long-standing career mm -hmm. in person safety, which is not that usual because yeah. the industry is pretty nascent. And <laughs> Among all of those practitioners who are so experienced, I often find they have certain conviction and mm. more star um, in their yep. personal calling. And, and I know for mm. you, it's related to your background. You grow up in South Africa. And, and I want to tell you, I want, I, I want, to, I want you to tell um, your experience growing yeah. up South Africa and how that led you in a lot of decisions you make in your career development as a trust and safety leader. Yeah. Thank you so much. This I, I love that question. And you're right. Um, I've been in the trust and safety realm in different sort of guises for, you know, 15 years now. First, you know, in, in the sports betting and gaming industry, where we, there's a lot of work around risk and fraud and marketplace manipulation and underage gaming. And then uh, five years with Twitter, uh, really, which is what which is where I really pivoted into into content moderation. And then finally, um, several years with Cognizant and now and now with Tasca. So I've, you know, I've been around both sides of the kind of buyer seller marketplace uh, in the content moderation space, both on the platform and the vendor side. But yeah, you're right. I think growing up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I came of age in the mid nineties, 1994 was the year that South Africa had its first democratic elections, Nelson Mandela and the ANC 
um, became the first democ democratically elected uh, leader of the country. I was 16. It's a you know it was this pivotal time in my life. A sort of I was I was transitioning from a from a young person into a into a young adult. It was also the year that the internet kind of came to South Africa, you know, at large. And for me, it represented a real awakening, both in terms of political awakening and and, and understanding um, what do all these changes mean in South Africa and what do they mean for me as in the context of a sort of a white South African and grappling with that by place in the in the country and grappling with with the past, which was quite difficult. Um, but also then um South Africa of the late 80s and 90s was a place of a lot of sanctions of government control, you know, the news was controlled by the government. And as a result, you know, growing up there, we were in a bubble, an information bubble, we didn't know what was in the rest of the world, because that that, that news didn't really filter its way in. And the internet arrived, as I said, in the kind of early to mid 90s. And my family were the first family in our entire school to get a modem, a little 14.4 dial-up modem, which I got gifted by my uncle Peter, who I just visited last week in Cape Town, and he remembered the interaction. He was a, like an early adopter, um, and we got this first modem. And we, you know, we had kids come from the school to visit our house just to hear the modem connecting to the internet because that was like this brand new thing. But what it meant for me was the entire world just opened up. I could now access. In those days, you know, it was sort of pre-websites. There were a few websites, but really the internet consisted of chats and you know, IRC and forums and Usenet and bulletin boards. And that's where I kind of spent my time. And what I realized was there's this entire world of information out there. And it can really inform uh, your viewpoint. You can, you can have rigorous debate. You can find really... Um, uh, you know, so-called dangerous information, right? And and coming from South Africa, dangerous information was was anything that uh, sort of counteracted what the government was trying to tell you. And it was just all there. It was it was un, unfiltered, and it was just available. And I, I, for me, it just blew my brain. I was, I fell in love with the idea that that information and knowledge could transform an individual and transform a society, and that education was the key to that, and and access to education. And, and really at its core, the internet is, is access to information and equitable access to information. So I, I, it built in me a lifelong love of that principle. But I also, you know, you see immediately the, the flip side of that coin, which is when there is unfettered, unfettered access to information, you also get bad actors. You get people whose um, motivations maybe aren't great. And that's where I've sort of landed, right? I'm sort of at this intersection where... I want to be a champion for free speech and, and free access to information and equitable access to knowledge, but I also want to make sure that it's a safe place where people, particularly vulnerable people in vulnerable communities, don't have to feel threatened and harassed or intimidated. And that's kind of, you know, I wake up every day with, with those two principles wrestling with each other inside me. I can hear the excitement in your voice when when we when we let our memory goes back to the dawn of the internet and you were right we had so much hope um so much excitement uh, for the internet and a web one was a great time and yeah. fast forward we we were in web two and the so-called social web and then we see this surge of proliferation of toxicity um right now we're dealing with and and to your point the back actors are catching that moment of information age just as well, if not actually in a faster velocity than the good actors on the internet. So mm -hmm. it's 
currently is an arms race out there. So, and you are right at the center of this. And tell us um, how you break down on the key issues of toxicities that you are staying ahead of to yeah. battle the bad actors in that arms race to keep the internet a much safer place. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I started in content moderation in, in Twitter, the, the, the kind of the, the big problems we were trying to solve in those days was, was really spam and porn. Um, those were the things that were pro proliferating. Those were the things that were causing um, the bad experiences on, on Twitter at the time. That then became, it morphed, it evolved over time. And really, uh, not that we solved spam or solved porn, but uh, we were able to sort of get a handle on that and, and you know, bring in automated solutions and bring in some operational uh, rigor that, that could sort of dampen that fire. But really, then we started to see the rise of more targeted harassment type behavior that was particularly targeted women on the platform. You think of Gamergate, you think of um, some of the high profile, um, particularly women, some women of color, you know, I think of Leslie Jones and some other people who left the platform altogether. And there was a, there was a lot of pressure to, um, to go after this kind of one-to-one -one type harassment or many-to-one type harassment, I, I would say. Um, and then we sort of saw, saw that evolve again to, um, one to many, where, where, where it was more like misinformation, disinformation, um, distorting the truth, using that as a vector for a pushing agenda. And, and, you know, when you think about spam and porn, it was primarily financially motivated, right? They wanted to make money. That shifted. It became more pol either politically motivated or personally motivated. And that was harder to, it's just harder to solve for. The motivations are more complex. The actors are more, um, how should I say, um, they're smart and they are they are um they're looking to they're looking to beat you right they they want to get around your system so really at that evolution at twitter I, I saw that happening in real time and then then you saw the rise of isis and the rise of these organized terror groups and and what they brought onto the platforms and the production value that they brought to the content that we're making which was a whole new thing and what we're seeing now really is all that stuff is still there um but it's kind of being amplified by I think a couple of key trends. One, um, the, the explosion of the internet into the so-called developing world and, and the access to the internet that's really gone uh, everywhere, right? I mean, there isn't a country in the world where they aren't seeing their version of those things happening, right? And it's just so much harder to police outside of the English language, which, which most of the large platforms, their, their, their models really do well with English, but don't do well uh, when you move outside of English, and particularly when you get to the so-called, I don't like this term, but the so-called long tail of languages right outside maybe the big 10 or 12 languages in the in the world. Um, and, and you only have to look at the news to know that, that can have some real world consequences, right, in places where uh, speech is restricted or, or um, uh, online speech turns into real world violence. Um, and then I think the other thing that we're seeing is... Um, uh, just a just a, a, a multimodal approach. So the content is no longer just video or just image, right? It's a it's live audio, and there's there's memes, which is images with text superimposed on it, or there's there's short form video, or there's 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 uh, large community uh, rooms or like audio spaces, or or so as a result, like it's very hard to track what's happening in these large multimodal channels and. Um, when I think of you know Taskus and, and and our role in that in that sort of space, we are 
ultimately serving our clients, right? We have to react to our clients' needs. And, um, you know, we don't, I don't operate a platform uh, myself, but we are augmenting our clients' content moderation uh, solution and trying to do two things. One, we're trying to meet their needs as they define them to us, um, but we're also trying to help the, our clients see, see what's coming next, right? So some of the investments that we've made in things like policy research, where we're able to see um, we're able to see what's happening on sort of the, the darker corners of the internet, whether that's the dark or the gray web or, or places like Telegram or Discord chat servers or certain, you know, kind of subreddits where we're able to see what are these emerging trends, how are they then playing out on the larger platforms and trying to give our clients some heads up or look around the corner um, about what's coming next, because what, what starts in those corners ends up on the mainstream channels, right? It's a, that's the evolution. Love it. There's so many great insights there. And the first thing you mentioned, I loved it. Uh, it, it was that the motivation has changed. It was, mm -hmm. it was financial incentives and, uh, and, and those incentives have evolved to be political and a personal uh, motivation. Yeah. And, and once it's personal, there's, there's also more conviction on the back actor side. And, yeah. and that's become, that's really became an arms race. And um, another thing you said is true. There is an explosion of content types happening. It's very, very hard. And I think uh, there are a few other questions I, I want to ask you related mm. to. But uh, but one thing you mentioned um, in the end was so true. You you are on the ground knowing what would happen and inform your clients to stay ahead of the game, which is so important because one thing we do learn in this industry is that definitions um, of toxicity is changing so fast yeah. and incidences which agitate toxicity are happening so fast so yeah. it's really it's really great to hear from you on those insights yeah. and, and one thing you mentioned the ex an explosion of content types um, I want to relate that to just the sheer scale and the volume of toxicity mm. we have online so nowadays um, there is therefore an explosion of uh, technology vendors, you know, to, to supply the artificial intelligence or just very basic um, technology solutions um, to, to do machine moderation. And yeah. there, there, there are a lot of um, uh, content on that aspect we covered in the previous episodes, but I really want to shift the gear a little bit, looking to yeah. the future moderation. Can you, can you share with us how do you balance? What do you think the optimal balance is between human and machine moderation? Mm. And also from your perspective, because that's exactly what you are doing, how do you train and organize the human moderators to truly amplify and multiply mm. the services and products that your clients use in-house to do yeah. the job? Yeah, I'll start by saying that content moderation has always been and will always be a synergy between technology and, and human beings. Um, AI technology and sort of smart technology, but also tools, right? We all have to have a workspace. We have to have a place for the work to happen. And then, and then human beings who are the experts, decision makers, curators, escalators, reviewers, judgment makers. Um, and, and the closer that that ecosystem works together in, in, a, in a sort of symbiotic way, the better the system will be theoretically, right? Because you're informing 
decisions that your human experts are making should be informing how you improve your algorithm, which should be informing how you improve your tools, which should be making your humans more productive and your flywheel starts going that way. And in, in the best kinds of trust and safety operations, that's the way it works. Um, I think that the challenges there are, are a couple. Um, one is the data flow between all of that is sometimes not super clean, right? So you may have multiple vendors, right? You may have some you know, companies like Taskus, but then you're also working with other types of technology companies. And then you have a client who has all this data that they're controlling and they don't want to give the data to this person and they don't want to give it. So you end up with a sort of unconnected ecosystem and everyone's trying to do their best, but no one has this fog of war for everyone. So that's, that's a common operating model that we see. And I think there's an opportunity as an industry to kind of give more visibility to the, um, the solution providers you're working with and 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 give them more rain to try and make that ecosystem better so that's i think that's one approach that that i'd like to see more of and um when i think about like you know the role of humans in content moderation going back to what i said before in the world of spam and porn it's almost i mean not completely but it's highly automated right 99 point blah 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 percent of all the work that happens in that space is fully automated there's not that many human beings doing anti-spam work versus what there was 10 or 15 years ago. When you go to the other end of the spectrum, when you're thinking maybe misinformation or you know, coordinated harm or multi-platform, multimodal harm, it's much more a human uh, uh, workflow right now, right? You've got often highly trained, highly skilled in-market, in-country people who have come from like a legal or a journalistic or a law enforcement background who are working in that space. And they're really they're doing what technology can't do, right? Because it requires so much cultural nuance and local understanding, and it requires a hyper-local approach. So I think you know, it's it's just two ends of the spectrum. Um, from, from my perspective, right, Taskus, ultimately we, our, our core business is providing teams of human experts to do the work of content moderation, but we are very interested in and are very, um, you know, bullish about a future where technology augments that. And, um, you know, I've, We've announced, I announced it on LinkedIn a month or two ago, but the, you know, we, we've made some pretty, um, we've made some pretty strong partnerships with some smart companies in the space, including a company out of Israel called Light, good friends of ours who we're working with to try build this end-to-end, -end, you know, AI plus tooling plus human managed service, um, and take that to market as a as a complete solution, because we do think there's space for a, a solution like that today, where you have one provider who has that data provenance from start to finish. And then ultimately, they can make that ecosystem better, stronger, faster, more accurate, which ultimately drives the better user experience, which is what everyone wants. Thank you. Let's talk about the digital wellness aspects for moderators. A couple of years ago, I think the situation is improving, but not fully solved, is mm. um, the traumatic experiences that human moderators are exposed to. And I know for you personally and for Taskus, you really care about this topic to really ensure the well-being and digital wellness for your human moderators. Mm. And I would love to have you share your best practice and your perspectives of yeah. how to increase the digital wellness and yeah. well-being for your moderators. Um, I, I can tell you that my first piece of advice to anyone in this space, go hire an expert. And that is not me. Right. I am 
I'm your trust and safety guy, but if you want someone to, to design a psychological health and safety program, you need to hire a doctor. And you need to go find someone with a background in trauma recovery and someone who has a background working with maybe first responders who have had similar kinds of um, secondary traumatic stress exposure. Um, and, and you need to give those people funding and, and backing and support to build a well-being program that transcends traditional employee well workplace wellness, right? And that's that was my big aha moment, which was when I was doing this work 10 years ago, we were all lay people, right? We were like, oh, it, we probably need some downtime or we probably need to see a psychologist once a quarter or we probably need a stress ball or maybe to meditate. And all those things are good, but you know, I'm not an expert. What do I know, right? About brain-based interventions or clinical health or, or psychology. I'm, I'm learning as I go, but I will never be an expert. So my, my aha moment was go and hire that person and give them the support backing and funding that they need to build a team and build a program. And then you will see the real results, right? Because those folks are trained and expert in improving health outcomes. And, and that is the key for me. And then you can do cool things, right? Once you have that in place, you can look at take the role of technology and maybe there's some interesting distancing techniques you can use, whether that's blurring or grayscale or some kind of VR or AR interventions. There's also interesting partnerships with academia, which you can only do if you credentialize yourself by bringing in clinicians in the first place. Academia doesn't want to partner with your HR team. They want to partner with doctors, right? So for me, that was the big aha, aha moment. Specifically, um, you know, what are the components? One, you need access to clinical staff um, on demand when you need help. And you need to make sure that that clinical staff are employed in the markets where you operate. So what I mean by that is if you have folks in India doing content moderation, they should be speaking to psychologists and mental health professionals in their market because they understand the local healthcare rules. They understand the local ethical um, approach to mental health in the workplace. They understand the cultural nuance. Um, you know, there's a lot of stigma around accessing mental health care outside of, you know, places like the US. Um, and uh, you can't sort of just copy paste a, a Western model into some of these countries, right? You need a very specific localized approach, but with a global control and global governance. I love it. It's very interesting. You mentioned trust and safety has been there for a while, but as an industry, well-shaped, it's only recent. And I don't know if you've observed that all the trust and safety tickets on many platforms were going to the same queue for customer support. Yeah. And in the same way that you can't just treat this group of employees and, um, and, and the contractors, the human moderators, as you actually treat the general um, employee base with the same generic employee support. Yeah. And yep. And, and I think that that specifications you mentioned are so important for the listener yeah. to um, pay attention to, because you even mentioned it's not just that group of contractors and employees you need to mm. pay specific attention to. You even to think about in-country support, there might be cultural yeah. differences. And I think it's very valuable advice you provide here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing I would say, a, a good analogy that I heard um, that I like to repeat is, you know, imagine you're running a um, nuclear power plant. You have certain roles. Maybe one guy is the security man. The other, the other person is a, 
um, you know, data scientist who's looking at the data, but then you have a group of people who are responsible for maintaining the core. They are exposed potentially through their work to a harmful situation, right? They need special equipment, special training, special selection process beyond what the security guard needs or beyond what the data scientist needs. All the roles are important, but certain roles have special requirements and you need to have special provisions. And that's how I think about content moderation. Every job has stress, right? If you're a call center operator, you could, you could have stress in your, in your day to day. You could, you could have stress with your boss. You could have stress at home and you bring that into the workplace. But content moderators have special needs that we need to make provision for upfront. And that includes training, equipment, and ongoing support. Phil, I want to ask you, what's next for you personally? You have been in the space for 15 years. You've played mm. a role in the space. What are you most excited about in your career development as a leader in trust and safety? Because I think that will give guidance to yeah. people who aspire to be a leader in the space. Which areas you want to develop more? What role you want to expand into from where you are? Yeah. And related to that, also, what's next for the industry? And I feel like now we have more awareness, but now we start to repeat what each other are saying. Yeah. What are where are the new innovations in policies, enforcement technologies you see? Where mm. so was your vision and perspective as a leader for career development and your vision for the industry? Yeah. Um, so the to the first question, um, I take each day as it comes. If I wake up and I feel I can make a difference, that my work matters, that my team matters, and that I can continue to give the best of myself in, in, a, in a job and in a company, I feel like I'm in the right place. And right now, I, I, feel, I wake up every day feeling that, and I, I love that feeling, right? I, you know, I'm 43 years old. I, I've done my share of, you know, not so fun jobs in the past. And uh, my first thing I would say is, you know, find, find something you love. Uh, build a specialization and build something that you're an expert in. Um, but I also would say, you know, be yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely, I like, I'm like most people, I landed in trust and safety by complete accident. You know, I same, same, like you said, right. I started out in operations or customer support. There was all these euphemisms for what we were doing and it ended up being this one thing. Um, and I've, I've just been able to, every day wake up and, and find ways to feel motivated and, and feel um, grateful. And, and that's a feeling that I carry with me and I, I encourage my team even, because you know we have tough days, everyone has tough days, right? The industry right now is having a really tough time. You've seen thousands of, of, our, of our colleagues around the world being laid off from companies. There will be more to come, I'm sure, as we're heading into the next year or two in the economy. Um, I would just encourage folks to continue to find homes for themselves where they feel like their their opinion and their work matters. And the good stuff will come from that, right? Whether whether that's financial reward or career development and career growth. But if you're living that truth for yourself, I think you know maybe it's a, maybe I'm a little bit wishy-washy in saying that, but I do believe that you live that truth for yourself in your career. The, the other stuff will will flow from that, right? The, the the stuff that is more sort of you know ambition oriented. And then in terms of where the where the industry is, um, I'm kind of excited about the next few years, and I'll tell you why. 
you know, out of the last recession, you know, some of us are old enough to remember the 2008 one, some of us even the 2001 one, uh, but innovation comes out of these tough times, right? The, the next batch of really smart services and platforms are being currently developed right now um, by employees that are leaving these big companies. And uh, those, those are going to be the, the next generation, right? Whether that's the metaverse or Web3 or something else that we haven't yet, you know, coined a name for, but the innovation right now is, is happening. And I, I'm very excited about what that looks like. I'm very excited about going back to what I said to you at the start, how do we make access to knowledge as free and as equitable to as many people in the world as, as we can, particularly those in the global South who have traditionally not had that. Um, and if these innovations that are currently being worked on can help us get a little closer to that goal, then I'm here for it, man. You know, I'm, that's, this, is, this is what I wake up every day working on in some way or the other. And, and to, to kind of put a cherry on it, you know, what's next for me? At some point in the future, I would like to maybe um, stop my own company, do something, you know, that's just mine. I've never really done that before. Definitely nothing that, you know, not, not doing that in the next, you know, year or two, but I think down the line, that would be something I would like to explore. Well, Phil, when you start your own venture, make sure that you let me know. I'll be supportive of whatever venture you embark on. And on this note, I also just want to say thank you to mm. your of how we make knowledge and practices more available um, to, to all. And uh, I want to thank you for your contributions and leadership in developing our uh, Oasis user safety standards, right? And the that was one of the biggest milestones for the consortium. And the, yeah. the real pinpoint was exactly you were saying. There wasn't there wasn't definition of good, there wasn't shared knowledge and practice. For different platforms yep. of different societies and regions to to abide by and therefore it's very hard to create policies and enforcement from there so i i thank you for your contribution to evolve the standards with all of us and your leadership yep. as a member for the consortium um, it's on my that pleasure. Note, yeah on that note are there anything else you want to say that i haven't asked you hmm um, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of good ground. Um, I am extremely proud of my and Taskus's association with the Oasis Consortium. I, I think, uh, you know, you and I have been speaking for some time, Tiffany and I, um, I'm a big fan of just more open communication, more collaboration, and all of us are ultimately working towards the same thing. You know, we're all mission-driven, purpose-driven people. We have different approaches. Sometimes we don't agree necessarily on everything, but we're all trying to do the same thing. And um, for too long, this work has happened in silos. It's happened almost, it's been shameful, right? It's like, oh, what do you do? Like, and you, right. you, 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 you don't want to talk about it or you're not allowed to talk about it or, but like, you know, this is happening. It's the work is not going away. And the sooner we create a sense of vocation and of professionalism and of career about this, and, and this is where, you know, Oasis comes in and other organizations that have that have set up around. And I think the, you know, more power to you and, and to and to your organization. And I'm delighted to be associated with it. Thank you, Phil. And thank you for coming on the podcast and share with us your great knowledge and expertise. You're, you're welcome. Thanks. I'll be back anytime. Thank you, Phil.